0: I think I knew deep down that if I just was left to my own devices, I wouldn't be able to have as much impact as I wanted. The thing that really drove me to that was Nigel's death made me realize how short time can be. And I didn't want to spend the next 10 years figuring this stuff out for myself.
1: the Future podcast. Today's guest is a creative business coach and someone who I think you are really going to enjoy listening to. Think of him like the British version of Christo. You'll see what I mean. In this episode, he and Chris talk about finding their sense of purpose in life and how everyone's story has inherent value, even if you don't see it just yet. They discuss strategies about how to become a better listener and why doing so is critical to the success of your business and client relationships. And this isn't just for the creative community. The ideas and mindset these two kindred spirits share are applicable to everyone. So put on your best listening ears and please enjoy our conversation with Matt Essam.
0: My name is Matt Essam. I am a creative business coach and I help established freelancers and small agency owners to find their dream clients so that they can do work that is both creatively fulfilling and financially rewarding.
2: When did you make the shift into being a creative coach?
0: Great question. Yeah, it was about four years ago now. Mm-hmm. It, was, um, it, was, it was kind of before that I was a digital marketing consultant. Um, and I just, the more I got down that rabbit hole, the more I started working with creatives, the more I realized there was bigger problems to be solved. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just that they needed help with their marketing. They needed help with their business. They needed help with their mindset. They needed help with lots of things. And I wanted to create as much of a transformation for them as I could, really. I wanted to solve uh, the biggest problem that I was capable of solving.
2: Did this have something to do with something that happened in 2015? Something that changed your life?
0: Yeah, it had a lot to do with that. Would you like to share a little bit about that story? (laughs) Yes, please. So I'd got my business to the point at at this point, I was kind of running what I would class as a micro agency. So it was me uh, and a bunch of freelancers. And I had got to the point where I decided that the work was tending to fall into one of two categories. It was either really creatively fulfilling and really exciting and stuff that I was really passionate about, but didn't have much of a budget. So it was always just like a lot of work for not a lot of money, Um, or it was super well paid but pretty boring, not a lot of creative control and not a lot of purpose behind it. And so I think I'd just finished reading the four hour work week, actually. And so I had this image in my mind of this business that I wanted to build where I could travel around. And I had this kind of team of people doing the work and I was really just managing the clients. And I'd been doing it for a while. I'd probably been doing it for about six or seven months. And from the outside, everyone kept telling me how amazing my life was. You know, people sending me messages on Instagram, my family that I visited over in New Zealand saying, oh, my God, you're living the dream. And although I could appreciate that it was great, I couldn't ignore this kind of gnawing feeling inside me that there was more to life than just churning out websites for people to fuel my own kind of pleasure and my own travel and my own lifestyle um and you know i wasn't a millionaire by by any means but i was doing some pretty cool stuff compared to some of my friends who were stuck back in the uk in in rainy england in january um and i remember there was this distinct point that you just alluded to i was in canada at the time and i just spent a lot of money on snowboard gear on ski passes um, and I was planning to be there for a while until um, a return a return trip a few months later back to the UK. And I remember it was like one Tuesday afternoon. I'm sat on the side of this this mountain, overlooking this incredible view, this incredible vista, and. I don't know if you've ever had this, but it was this feeling of like, I should be appreciating this way more, but I can't ignore the fact that in a few hours, I've got to go and talk to a client that I really don't want to talk to. I've got to go and answer a bunch of emails with projects that I don't really care about. And I started to kind of, you know, really break at the seams because I couldn't ignore that feeling anymore. And I was feeling guilty for not enjoying myself. And Mm. so I come back to my, my hotel room. And I see a message from my mom and it just says, it's like the first thing that comes off my phone. It just says, please call me as soon as you get this. And that's not a good message for anybody to get right when you're the other side of the world. And me and my mom right. usually just kind of text backwards and forwards and it's all fine. And, and my heart just sank and I was like, oh God, what has happened? And so I like run, I grab my phone. I've got no signal in the hotel room. So I run outside and I'm calling my mom, trying to get through. And eventually it starts ringing and it's like the longest ringtone in the history of man, you know, just like this (laughs) moment of like, Oh God. And I remember it being freezing outside. I'm just stood in, in this hoodie, looking around at the snow. And my mom picks up the phone and I said, what's happened? What's going on? And she just says, Nigel's dead. That's all we know. Um, Dad thought it was best that you found out sooner rather than later. And I remember this, this feeling of just, like where i just didn't know what to say i just didn't have a single word to say back to that um and so just to give people some context nigel was my my godfather's son he was in his 40s and he just died like very suddenly and unexpectedly he wasn't ill or anything and so i said you know obviously i'm going to come back i, I want to be with a family and, and whatever i'll cut my cut my trip short and so i kind of rushed back to the hotel and then all of a sudden i went back into into the room checked my bank balance and i realized that i didn't even have enough money to pay for a flight home. Cause I'd already paid for all my flights and, and my trip and everything. And I'd spent all this money on my, my snowboard gear and I was waiting on clients from payments and things. And so I have to call my mum back and say, I really wanna come home, but can you help me out with the flight? Mm. And you know, and it's just like that point where I'm sitting on the plane on the way, way home and just thinking, what am I really doing with my life? You know, like, what is all of this about? Um, and I think like a lot of people now who have maybe had to pause their life and reflect a little bit because of the situation we find ourselves in, it was that real moment where everything else, like all the unimportant stuff just kind of drops away and I love it. I was actually listening to a video of yours the other day and you talk about, um, I think her name's Bronnie Ware uh, in Mm -hmm. in her book, the regrets of of the dying. And it was that, you know, it was that moment of when I look back at this, am I going to be proud of this business? Or am I going to wish that I had actually done something that, that had some more meaning and that had some more purpose. And that was the real kind of transitional point for me where I drew that line in the sand and I said, you know, enough's enough and and something mm-hmm. has to change here.
2: So it sounds to me like the passing of, uh, is this like he's almost like family right nigel. yeah
0: exactly so like extended family but mm-hmm. knew him really well and i'm very close to my godfather so right yeah yeah
2: so it's the passing of nigel that makes you all of a sudden aware of your mortality it's also the awareness and sudden realization that the freedom that you thought you had was more limited than you thought because even the ability the flexibility to fly home at that point like you didn't have the funds to do that exactly. so you were kind of living this moment this lifestyle Uh, And then all of a sudden that came to a screeching halt. This was your emergency break moment Mm, where you had been cruising on autopilot, right? Yeah. And now it's like you have to take inventory of your life and what you're doing.
0: Yeah, exactly that. Okay.
2: So take me from that moment to then jumping forward, then how you become a creative coach and what that means to you.
0: Yeah, totally. So I think like a lot of people, when you're going through what I could only class really as an existential crisis, Um, there's this kind of tendency to do a lot of searching. And so I was reading books. I was watching Ted talks. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, following inspirational memes on Instagram. And it was clear that the thing that was missing in my life was a sense of purpose. The only problem was I didn't know how to find it. And any literature that I came across was quite esoteric. It was quite vague. And the Akigai diagram that I came across really resonated with me because i realized that i had been stuck down in that kind of profession box you know between what you can be paid for and what you're good at despite Mm -hmm. the fact that i'd been to school and university and ticked all the boxes that i thought i should tick i still wasn't really doing the thing that that lit me up i I just kind of was had a job um and so i was like right i need to find what what this purpose is for me like you know what what is it that i'm gonna what mark do i want to leave on the world And I actually picked up this, this book popped up in my Amazon recommendations, because I'd read some other books by this author. Um, And the book was called Key Person of Influence by Mm -hmm. Daniel Priestley. And to be honest with you, Chris, like when I first picked it up, or first saw it, I was a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I want to read this because it kind of gave me the feeling of, you know, how to be an Instagram influencer. And and I kind of (laughs) thought, this is just going to take me back to where where I was before. Um, But it had so many good reviews. And I thought, well, this is either like, this guy's either really good at paying for reviews or actually there's something to this. And I realized I'd read some of his other books. So I thought, actually, you know, this guy's a genuine, genuine author. And honestly, I didn't put that book down for like two weeks. I think I read it two or three times. Mm. And there were loads of things that resonated with me in the book. But the one thing that really resonated with me was this concept that Daniel talks about that we're all standing on a mountain of value, but we're so close to that mountain. Like we're scaling the rock face that we can't see it. We can't see how big it is. Um, And actually, all of the things that have happened to you in your life, They're all kind of pointing you in a direction already. So instead of looking for this purpose out there somewhere, look back at your life, look at the things that have happened to you in your life that make you who you are. And more importantly, who does that put you in a position to help? Like, who are you in a unique position to help? What problem are you in a unique position to solve? Um, And I love you, you, you talked a little bit about this in your recent, episode with Meg Lewis I think where she talks about this concept of bringing everything in her life together right um, and it was very much that moment it was very much that moment of wow this is way more than just about building websites for people you know this is like I've got so much other stuff in my life that maybe at the time didn't seem relevant to this but actually these lessons these things could really help somebody and so I decided that basically I needed to kind of step my game up a little bit and 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 figure out how all this stuff tied together and so that that journey continued but but again from kind of the next point in the moment to to where I am today was when I realized that I I'd kind of mastered the art of creativity um you know I'd got to a certain level in my creative career where I could build good-looking websites I could take great photos um I'd reached a certain standard but I'd really neglected the business side of creativity Um, And I know, you know, that's kind of essentially what the future is all about as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's probably where we, we have a lot of parallels. But I think for me at that time, it was really about looking at some of the people I admired, you know, whether it's from kind of Steve Jobs to Walt Disney, Andy Warhols, and digging into their biographies and their backgrounds and realizing that they weren't just great creative minds. These people were great business people. Right. They were business savvy. They thought about the business side of creativity. And I thought, well, you know, Daniel Priestley is the guy that kind of made me realize this, who better person to try and kind of seek out and work with. And so I went on this journey of trying to find my, find mentors and and find people that had mastered the business side of things. So entrepreneurs that had built multiple seven figure businesses, like what were they doing differently that I wasn't, um. And I distinctly remember that moment where I decided to invest more time and money and energy than I ever have in my life, um, you know, working towards this goal. And I went to an event that Daniel was was hosting and I was quite surprised actually to see him at the front of the room because, you know, often these authors, they give TED Talks and they can be quite elusive. Um, Right and i kind of i saw him there at the front of the room and i thought oh my god i had this almost like mini panic inside where i thought am i going to end up being this fanboy you know like <laughs> running up to him and be like oh my god i need you to help me i need you to be my mentor um and he was doing this book signing at the end and i managed to kind of like hold my composure and tell him a little bit about my story and he, and he was really good about it you know he was he's obviously used to people kind of coming up and telling him about how his books have resonated um but i took that opportunity i was lucky that daniel and his team were running um something a little bit similar to to what the future do but specifically for um kind of six to seven figure entrepreneurs and they had this Mm -hmm. new program that they were launching and i was like right this is it i'm gonna i'm gonna do this i'm gonna invest in this i'm gonna work with daniel and his team um and you know that was a kind of two three year journey and really i just extracted everything i took and i just tested it in my business first i just went out and i was like right how am i going to apply what i've learned here to my business and, it, and it, that's how it just evolved and transitioned and i started to get really clear on who do i really want to serve what's the problems that they have um, what's the solution that i'm going to provide and, and really just kind of doing all that fundamental groundwork around business that I'd, I'd never really done before and i think one of the reasons was probably maybe one of the reasons why a lot of creatives uh, avoid this is because when i was at university and when i I've, i studied a business and computing degree when i first went to university and in my mind business was like economics numbers accounts people in suits you know it was boring like i didn't want to know anything about it um and I think meeting people like Daniel Priestley and, and and real world entrepreneurs made me realize that actually business can be fun, right? And and actually the better you get at business, the more opportunities that you have and and the more of an impact you can have with your creativity. Mm. Um and and it really just evolved, to be honest, from there, Chris. It was like this this journey where the more people I spoke to, the more freelancers I spoke to, the more creative agencies I spoke to, the more themes I saw, the more patterns I saw. Um, and I started taking what I had done with my business and and helping other people and applying it to other people's businesses. And I remember once someone said to me like, you know, watching what you've done over the past year, what are you doing differently? Because I'd, I'd got rid of most of my clients and I'd, you know, obviously changed my kind of, um, online presence and 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 you know really kind of shifted and so people noticed that and then they were like well what are you doing and people wanted to know and and i realized how much fulfillment that i got from really helping people to make a, a transformation and and you know sometimes that maybe sounds like a bit of an exaggeration but I really believe that what i've got today is something um, that is kind of transformational and and it's called one of my core products is called the creative life accelerator and the reason i called it that was because i realized that ultimately this was about living a more creatively fulfilling and financially rewarding life you know Mm. it was about doing the work that aligned with your values it was about doing work that has purpose that has meaning um, and that actually you can look back at and be proud of and feel like you've got a legacy and stuff that you want to tell your kids about and things that you want to tell your friends about rather than just churning out logos and churning out websites for the sake of paying the bills.
2: Okay. I have a bunch of questions to ask.
0: (laughs) So, okay, let's see here. I didn't want to interrupt, but I may have to
2: interrupt more often. Um, So here, okay. So here's the thing. You come to this realization that there's got to be more to it than just a rat race that doing client work can sometimes be soul sucking and unfulfilling. And I have to ask you here, because you're talking about the icky guy and just finding your reason for being, how old were you when this became clear to you?
0: I think I was probably about 26 or 27.
2: Okay. Because I would say that that's pretty young, relatively speaking. And I find that when you talk to people in their 20s, we we go through these phases. And I know it's a big stereotype, the 20s, the 30s, 40s. You move through these phases of your life and you get a certain amount of awareness. That in our 20s it seems like we're out of school we're still full of maybe ego desire passion whatever it is you want to call it where we need to achieve something we want to make our mark on the world make a dent in the universe and then after doing that for some time you start to realize how hollow that pursuit is and then you start to reflect on yourself and say what am i really doing that's going to be a benefit to anybody after i'm gone Hmm. so i think perhaps nigel passing away maybe accelerated that timeline because when i talk to people who are especially in their 20s what's my purpose my reason for being Hmm. they they didn't even know how to even answer that question yeah because they're just trying to still make their mark in the world and i I imagine you must talk to 20 year olds who want to live this creative life how do they respond to this story about finding purpose and aligning those things from from what you've learned from the icky guy
0: yeah well it's really interesting because actually I'd say 80% of my clients are older than me.
2: Oh, okay. See, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't
0: really resonate with like the younger right. people as much. And they, you're right. They kind of think, well, you know, who's this guy like trying to give me advice? I'm, I want to go out there and take on the world. I know what to do. Yada, yada. Right. Um, not all of them. There are, there are some, some clients, but yeah, I'd say like the youngest client I have, I think is maybe 31 or or, or something like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, the majority of my clients are like mid forties um, some in, in their early fifties.
2: And how old are you now? Just for context, I don't want to do the math. That's all right. I'm 31 at the moment. Yeah. Okay. So you, your youngest client is the same age as you. Yeah. So I have another question. It's just yeah. going off on a tangent, but oftentimes people who are older have a harder time listening to younger people. It's like, mm. what kind of life experience do you have? Who are you to tell me that, you know, finding purpose and meaning and doing fulfilling work, work that matters. What do you know?
0: And do you get that a lot? it's interesting is actually more of an internal fear than an external one. So I mm-hmm. haven't, I mean, maybe people say that, you know, behind my back, I don't know, but, <laughs> um, but like, I've never had it as an objection, which I've always found strange. Mm-hmm. I remember like the first time I took on a client, um, uh, probably in his late forties, early fifties, very well respected photographer. Um, and I had to pinch myself a bit, you know, thinking, wow, I'm sitting here coaching this guy, you know, who's like, 10, 15 years, 20 years, my senior, right. But that's the power of coaching, right? So I'm not telling people, I'm not mentoring people. I'm not telling them how to run their business per se. I'm giving them frameworks to operate within. I'm challenging their thinking. I'm asking them better questions. I'm getting them to think about things that they've never thought about, um, until this point. And, and, and I think you can do that at any age. And I think by being vulnerable and open and telling those kinds of stories, um and kind of putting my hands up and saying hey look I'm not the expert but what I can say with my hand on my heart is that I love every single one of my clients and I genuinely would hang out with them whether they are my clients or not and I get well paid for what I do and I feel like this sense of purpose like like I want to come on podcasts and I want to write a book and I want to get my message out there and and it's not always been like that. I know what it's like not to have that feeling. And it can just feel a bit monotonous. So, you know, I'm not professing to have all of the answers. But what I can say is that I do have those things. And this is how I found it. So, you know, if you're willing to come on this journey with me, then this is what it would look like.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, while we, you were talking about this idea of standing on the mountain and not a uh, mountain of value, and you can't see it. Uh, I, I wrote a note down here from the book. It's like, you you say in the book it's not so much about what we want, but we should be asking what can we give, mm. and trying to figure out like who you are. That you say that you're like um, the ice, the proverbial iceberg, and your skills, your qualifications, your portfolio, those things that's the tip of the iceberg. And so many creative people define themselves that way. Mm. So what's the rest of the iceberg that we're not seeing? Like who do you, who who are we if we're not those three things?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, right? Um, Let's try not to get too philosophical in here, because if we go down the route of who are we, we might end up speaking (laughs) for the next five hours. But I know what you mean by the question. And I I think we are a combination of our experiences, right? And the narratives Mm -hmm. that we create around those experiences. And so for me, as an example, I realized I had all these experiences in my life. So as an as a really quick example, I don't tell this story very often. But when I was 18, I got diagnosed with a heart condition, it was like an arrhythmia. Um, And I didn't really know what it was. And it was a really quick thing where they were like, look, we can fix this, this is how we fix it. And it was over kind of before I, I knew it, right. But then in hindsight, when I look back, I started to get anxious about it, because actually it was, it could have potentially been quite dangerous and what ended up happening was i ended up almost getting like a bit of ptsd um and i i, I developed this real kind of like background health anxiety and i started to have panic attacks and, and things like that and it was it was probably a year and a half of my life that i looked at as a really dark time um because i i'm quite an extroverted person and i got to the point where i couldn't even really leave the house because i was just constantly uh, on edge and felt like i was gonna drop dead of a heart attack like any second um and I had to go through a lot in that period of learning how to deal with that stuff. And I learned things about cognitive behavioral therapy, neuro-linguistic programming, how the mind worked. And I brought myself out of that. And now I never even considered that to be a part of what I would do professionally. It was just something that happened in my life that wasn't a great time. I'd rather put it behind me. It gave me some great skills. But then when I was working with Daniel and other mentors, I realized I had a vast amount of knowledge about psychology and how the mind worked and how those things could be really, really beneficial to people that were struggling with even basic things like self-confidence. So that's like an example from my life of something that was underneath the iceberg that I hadn't found a way to relate to my business. But to give you an example of, of one of my clients, like a really basic example, I've got a client called Scott and he's always been into the outdoors and adventure. And from my perspective, it was really clear that he should niche down and, and work in the kind of outdoor and adventure world. But for him, he didn't see it because he, he couldn't see how those worlds were kind of related. And so I got Scott to go back through his life and think about some of the experiences that he had had. Some of the climbs that he'd been on, some of the adventures he had been on and draw the lessons from that. Like if he was going to teach someone something about that, like what lesson would he draw out of that? And when we collected those things together, I asked him like, who are the sort of people that those would be valuable for? And he came up with a list of people and strangely enough, they were all some way related to the outdoor and adventure industry, right? So all of a sudden, Scott started to realize that he was more than just a graphic designer. He was a creative problem solver and the people that he was best to help and best to solve those problems for were people like him who had similar experiences, but didn't have other skills that he had and other experiences because that story your story is the only thing that really is unique to you like people can copy your skills people can copy your portfolio and work with similar brands but no one can copy your story and the life that you've lived and the people you know in your network that's that's all the stuff that's kind of under the iceberg
2: Mm. okay so I'm I feel like I'm just are you British I am yeah Okay, I feel like I'm just talking to the British version of myself here. Okay. <laughs> I tell people, it's like, you know, you, the work is a byproduct of who you are. And yeah. if you sell yourself just strictly on your work, you're gonna be one of a million. Yeah, exactly. And you're just gonna be mixed in there versus just one of a kind. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't know, my story's really not that interesting. Mm. So what's this phenomenon coming from? Like, why are we so blind to our own story? It's a great
0: question. Well, imagine, like, what's one of your favorite films? The Matrix. The Matrix. Okay, how many times have you seen The Matrix? Probably a dozen times. Okay, a dozen times. If I made you watch that film a thousand times, you'd probably get pretty sick of it, right? Probably. Yeah, like, literally, a th- think about it, like, a thousand mm. times. <laughs> over and over. And I got you to, like, analyze the scenes and, like, watch it really kept care- Like, it would lose all kind of emotion and like you wouldn't get lost in the narrative you you just know exactly what was coming next right right and our life is a little bit like that because we're living it we know the stories inside out so to us we don't see that story the same way somebody else does so when people say to me like oh my god that's a fascinating story well it doesn't seem that fascinating to me and I have to actively go there again to remind myself of that story and how I felt in the time because I'm watching it all the time Right? It's, it reminds me when I did A-level media studies, one of the things that we had to do is we had to take a scene in a film and we had to analyze it. We had to look at like the characters and the mise-en-scene and all of that stuff. By the end of it, I was so sick of those scenes. Like they just meant nothing to me. They had no emotion, no narrative, no nothing because I'd like analyze them to death. And so... Our life is like that we're viewing it through the lens of somebody that's seen it a thousand times so that when we tell it, we just think, oh, well, it's, that's that thing that happened, you know, it's no bigger deal, but from somebody else's perspective, that's the first time they've heard that story. Does that make sense?
2: It makes total sense. And I really like the analogy that you're making that you've lived in your story all your life. So you've seen it way more than 10,000 times. Yeah. And so you become numb to it. It just becomes unspecial. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I
0: think, you know, that sorry to interrupt, but I think there's Hmm. like this, this whole thing of like, unless you have a rags to riches story, then it's not worth telling. You know, like, I I can't remember the guy's name, but there's something recently that that came out with a guy that had been incarcerated for 37 years. um, And he went on um, America's Got Talent. And, you know, it's a real sub story. And it's like, well, unless you're that guy, unless you've been in prison for 37 years of your life, and wrongly convicted for a murder that you didn't do, there is no point in you telling your story, because it's going to be boring. Right. <laughs> you know, and there's this whole yes. narrative it's like how can we get more intense and more crazy but it doesn't need to be like that. You know, it, it mm. doesn't need to be a rags to riches story for it to be valuable to someone, right? Someone is going to connect with that story. Someone who's experienced what you've experienced. Someone who's going through what you went through but doesn't have the answers, but doesn't have the strategy right now. Like they're the people that you need to tell the story to.
2: Right. So this reminds me of a couple ideas and just to cement it. And then I I think then I want to ask you a different question, but it's uh, this expression. uh, You can't read the label when you're inside the jar Mm -hmm. and your, your life seems pretty unremarkable, unspecial because it's just how you think everything is. Mm. Like if you, if you come from an abusive family, you just think that all families must be that way. If you, if you are come from a family that are chain smokers, you think everybody must smoke. That's just normal. And Chris exactly. Voss talks about this in his book, Never Split the Difference. He says the number one mistake that you can make in negotiations is to assume the other person has the same set of values and beliefs that you have, and they're totally different. Yeah. Okay, so now we say, like, let's accept the fact that we all have relatively interesting stories that make us this, or uh, part of this rich tapestry of who we are beyond our work. How do we, how do we find this? What, what? Do we have to tell somebody else our story and see how they react to it? Or what? how do guide me through that process a little bit, will you?
0: Just yeah, high totally. level. so well, one of the things that I do with my clients is actually something called the river of life. And I actually get them to start at their kind of earliest memory or the place where they feel their story starts. And I, I get them to imagine it's like a winding river. And I, and I just get them to plot all of the points on that river that they can remember the highs, the lows, the good things, the bad things, the things in their life that were significant. And it's almost just like at this point, we're getting all of the Lego pieces out on the table. We're just throwing it out there. Right. Mm-hmm. And then once they've done that, I ask them to go through and I ask them to pick like five to seven defining moments, moments in your life where you felt like something fundamentally changed or you had a realization or you met someone and just pick those moments out and then then we kind of experiment with those right and we think well what what could be the lessons that we could take from those moments like what was the thing that you learned what was the takeaway if you had to teach that to your kids or if you had to you know write a book that you were going to leave to the world what would be that thing Um, And then, yeah, like the best experiment is to go out and tell it to people and see kind of what reaction you get from it.
1: Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with Matt Aslan.
3: Hey, Ben Burns from the future here. If you don't recognize my voice, you might know me from our YouTube channel as the friendly guy with a big beard. Yep. That's me. Listen, the future's mission is to teach a billion creatives how to make money doing what they love without feeling gross about it. And let's be honest, historically, we creative types are great at producing the work, but not so great at running the business, especially when it comes to things like sales, marketing and money. I know, personally, I used to struggle with all of those. Now, fortunately for you, though, we have a slew of courses and products designed specifically to help you run your business better. These are tools like the complete case study and the perfect proposal. These things are there to help you attract new clients and then wow them with a thorough and professional presentation. Now you can go even deeper with one of our business courses like project management, how to find clients and the intensive business boot camp. Check out all of our courses and products about running a creative business by visiting thefuture.com/business.
1: Welcome back to our conversation with Matt Essen.
2: So in some ways, I think people, other human beings who are not familiar with your story, when you tell it to them, based on their reaction, you can, you can gauge like, oh, this is really, they're really interested. There's something here. And so they, they validate or they confirm some parts of your story. But regardless, everybody has a story. Some are a lot more exciting and uh, full of adventure, but everybody has a story. And when I lecture about personal branding, I, I tell people, just look at these two points. Where where were you born and where do you live now? Those are just two anchor points of a story already. Because where you were born says a lot about your culture and your past. But where you live now says a lot about the decisions you've made as an adult. And if they're the same city, no problem. Maybe you're a really consistent person. You've set your roots in the community. But if you are living very far away from where you were born, that says something about you as well. So those are some clues. Mm, okay. I love that. Here's, here's the thing. You sent me the book. I scanned most of the book. The book is called Create and Prosper, How to Find Your Dream Clients and Build a Freelance Business You Love. All right, so in the book, right in right in the very beginning here, it says, it's never been a better time to be a freelancer. Now, this is now 2020. We're here uh, almost end of May, entering into June. Why is this the best time to be a freelancer? And then the follow-up question is, I want to understand your definition of a freelancer.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, you know, I, I wrote that book before the whole COVID outbreak, so I'll just throw that in. Okay. Out. Okay. <laughs> but, no, I still think, I I, I believe um, that uh, recessions and crisis mm-hmm. and everything are a huge opportunity. You know, they're, they're an opportunity for a power shift um, in terms of the way that wealth and power is distributed, but they're an opportunity to help and to serve. And so the reason I wrote that is because If you were born, um, well, if you were born a hundred and so years ago, you'd be fighting a war. Um, But if you were born before that, you were born into a class system, right? And there were certain ways that you could work your way up that class system, but it was hard. Like once you were in there, if you were a laborer and if you worked in a factory, that's where you worked for the rest of your life. And, And really, although there was opportunity, compared to today, there was no opportunity. Right? And, right. and right now you can be a freelancer with a laptop in anywhere in the world. That's all you need. You, you can save up. I didn't even know, like you probably don't even have to buy a laptop. You could probably do it with like one of the new swanky iPads or something. You probably spend maybe mm-hmm. 500 bucks, a thousand bucks. And you've got a mobile business. You've got a global business that you can run from anywhere in the world. Like never, ever before has that been possible. So Really, it's the technology and the opportunities is why I say now is is the best time to be a freelancer. And it's a great question about the definition. And what's interesting and what's crazy is I've never really thought about that in too much detail. But I think there's mm-hmm. a definitely a distinction to be made. When I talk about freelancing, I'm not talking about contractors, right? So I get a lot of people right. sending me messages through my websites and inquiring to be on my courses and they just go from one agency to another agency and they call themselves freelancers but really they're just job hopping you know they sit in an office and and they have a job and they they do the work for yeah. me freelancing is about running a business um having your own clients and um having the freedom to work when and where you want in a in a, in the most basic definition I think
2: mm-hmm yeah so this is the reason why i mean if you fans of the show will know why i asked this question and just for context case you're new first of all welcome to the podcast everybody (laughs) yeah no i've listened to a few episodes yeah yeah. so the thing about freelance is that um it's a term that is often used interchangeably with independent business owner Mm. and this is where a lot of the confusion comes in i I get into heated debates with uh, people who work for me about this term and freelance for my conversation with jonathan stark he's like freelance lance lance a lancer is a hired mercenary hmm. and 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 i think when i talked to brian collins he says the original usage of freelance was in beowulf beowulf hired a bunch of swordsmen to go fight with him and that, that was it yeah. so it's it's kind of like mercenaries and those of you guys that are listening to us think about this if you sell your time to other people you're basically in that sense, a mercenary. That you go in for a job, you're expendable, they replace you whenever they want, and you're not really focusing on the business components of sales, marketing, negotiations, bidding, pricing, jobs. So it's a very different world. So just so we're clear, okay? So you're really talking about these other people, these business owners. So Yeah, now I'm disappointed that
0: I agree with you. I thought we'd found something (laughs) we disagreed on there. I was getting excited.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. So the other part to this is like, finding your dream clients we all want dream clients so in the book you you talk about a couple of points like what makes a client a dream client
0: well i actually look at four things i look at four four separate aspects Mm -hmm. um the first one is is i've got to be passionate about spending time with them and and working with them like Mm -hmm. i've got to want to hang out with them as much as i would want to hang out with a friend or a family member and for some reason when it comes to business we just A lot of us just drop that criteria and we let and we work with people that you know treat us like crap or like don't pay on time and and all of our standards go out the window so for me the first and i was guilty of that for sure so me the first thing is like would actually love working with this person kind of even if they weren't paying me um the second thing is can i solve a significant problem for them so is there something that i'm going to do which is really going to create a significant I use the word transformation lightly because you know your your, your services don't have to be life changing, but like, is it gonna is it gonna solve a tangible problem rather than just giving right. some, them something that they said they wanted, like a logo or a website? Like, is it actually gonna help them? Um, the the third thing is, can they afford me, right? So, do they have right. the money to actually pay me um, what I believe that I want to be paid? And then the fourth and final thing is, can I start conversations with them? Because if you can have the first three. But then, like, let's say you like, oh, I really want to work with Adidas. I would love working with them. They've got a huge budget, and I can definitely help them. It's like, right. cool. Go start, go start a conversation with Adidas. Like, how are you going to do that? Um, so you've got to have that route to market. You've got to be able to actually start conversations. And if they tick those four boxes, then to me they're a dream client because you can find more of them. Um, you can you can build upon that.
2: Mm. Okay. So that's going to be a barrier to most people. The number four is very important because I think we could all sit down and make a list of our dream clients, quote unquote. Mm. And we don't, we can't, we have no access. We can't have a conversation with them. And mm. so what do we do then?
0: Well, that's why I think the first part about, you know, uncovering your story and bringing those things all together is so important because what you realize is that when you focus on your values, So, if you, if let's say someone said, I want to, I want to work with Adidas. And I was like, okay, why? What is it about Adidas? I just love their branding. I love what they do. Okay, why? What is it about that? What is it about that? And I just kept digging. Eventually, I would come up with an emotion like significance or, you know, respect or legacy or something. And then, then my question becomes, okay, who else could you work with that you could have a conversation with that would also give you that emotion? And so we pin the vehicles. Of like significance and whatever on the brand, we, we say, Oh, that's the only way I'm gonna feel that way when I work with this brand. But actually, there are loads of ways to get that emotion met, if that makes sense. <laughs> so I think it's the, the the point is finding the people that that meet those criteria is about looking at your story. So for Scott, you know, he might have an ambition to work with North Face as an example, which is like a big climbing brand. Right. But right now, he doesn't, he doesn't. it's not like he's only going to be happy when he works with North Face. He's already working with people who have similar attributes to North Face. Just the North Face is just like a, another rung up the ladder, but it doesn't mean that he can only be happy and fulfilled and have creative work that pays him well until he works with North Face. So I get people to start conversations within their existing network. And the reason it's so important to look at all of the stuff under the iceberg and all of the things that are happening already in your life That maybe you're dismissing is because those people probably already exist there so for scott he realized that he already knew a bunch of those people with the climbing wall that he went to so he just started conversations at the climbing wall and that spread and then that spread to other companies and and it built from there does that make sense rather than kind of saying oh i want to work with north face so i'm going to spend all my time trying to figure out how to pitch north face and then if i don't get them then this business doesn't work
2: yeah Okay. I, I want to jump over to something else here uh, okay. in terms of sales. Okay. Because I, I, I like the analogies that you've developed in the book. And you talk about these two islands. Can you explain that concept?
0: Yeah. So the two islands are, I just call them Island A and Island B, very original. Um, <laughs> and Island A is where the client is now. And Island B is where the client wants to get to. And essentially, whatever is in the way of those two islands is, are their challenges, the things that are stopping them getting there. And most people don't spend enough time um, mapping those, that kind of scenario out. So they don't spend enough time really getting a good idea of what Island Day looks like. Like, where are they now? What are they doing with their marketing? What, what, how much do they currently spend on this problem? Like, they don't get an idea of exactly what that looks like. And then the the biggest mistake is they don't spend enough time digging down past the things that the client presents as island B. So like, oh, here's my island and this is where I want to get to. And usually that takes the form of like a website or a logo or whatever. But the, the kind of analogy I use in the book is like, you've got to dig down past that, like you're digging for the gold and the gold is actually getting them to really think about why they want that stuff. So island B is like the goal behind the goal. Like what is it that they really, really want?
2: The goal behind the goals. So perhaps they say to you, I want to get to that island and it's actually the wrong island?
0: Yeah. Or it's maybe like they just describe it like, Oh yeah, you know, it's an island, it's got some beaches and some coconuts and you know, like that's where I want to go. Like, okay, cool. Well why? Like what else has it got on it? Like is there a waterfall? Like why why is a mm-hmm. beach and coconuts important? Oh, you know, I like relaxing. Oh, okay. So you want a beach that you can relax on. So is it important that like there would be a section of the beach where there would be no wind and there would just be sun. Oh yeah, actually that would be important. Like, do you see what I mean? So you're actually getting them to go there and think about why, why do you want that?
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So once you realize uh, why they want it, what what are you supposed to do?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Great question. Um, well, the first thing you've got to ask is like, how confident do you feel about getting them there? You know, like what, in an ideal world, if you only got paid after you got them there, what would need to happen? What would oh, need to Oh, be... this is
2: accountability now.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's an element of accountability, but there's also, mm-hmm. let's say there's an element of like, you know, between Island A and Island B is this big river, like, and, and you've got to help them navigate that. And so they might wanna take a boat over, but what they don't know is that there are these really strong currents that are gonna take them downstream. And so you've gotta ask yourself, like if I'm safely gonna take that person from A to B, rather than just kind of building a boat for them and letting them go on their way, because that's what they've asked for. Like you've gotta take responsibility and be the guide and be the person that says, well, hold, hold on. Like I'm in this world. I know that there are really dangerous currents in here. So actually like we can't build a boat, we have to build a bridge to get here. And in order to build the bridge, I've got to bring in Jeffrey, who's the bridge expert, and you know I've got to collaborate with this person. And if we're really going to get you there, then this is what it's going to take. And so my whole philosophy is either I get them all the way to island B, or I don't work with them. And and that that kind of principle, when I first decided on it, was really scary. Um, yeah. Because you're like turning away business, basically, of people that just want the boat. Um, but the people that want the boat are gonna end up somewhere downstream capsized and eventually that's gonna come back to bite you in the ass. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I'm
2: I'm glad you're saying this because I think a lot of creative people who have very finite skill sets, who have yet to learn to collaborate and hire other people to help them, they tend to search for islands only they know how to get to. Mm. So no matter what the client says, it's, no, you really don't want to go to that island, you really want to go to this island, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. And so when when you introduce this idea that actually you want to solve a big problem that's valuable, that can improve their business in measurable ways, that they instinctively fear that because they know that it's not part of their wheelhouse. So how do you help people overcome this fear?
0: Yeah, totally, and it's really valid. Uh, it's a really valid point, Chris. There are two ways, two responses that I take to that. I think the first one is that it's an option. And what I mean by that is this, the size of the problem is always going to be related to how much money you can charge. So I'm not saying like you always have to solve the biggest problem and like take on the world's problems. I'm just saying that like, if you want to earn more money, you've got to solve a bigger problem, right? So it, yeah. it's optional. Um, and in terms of the, like, the kind of fear side of things, I think it's about helping people to realize that they're already the experts. You know, they're already, if you do the first bit right, if you uncover your story and you find the right niche or niche, as you guys call it in the States, mm-hmm. um, then you're already the expert. So i give you a really tangible example. I've got a, a client um, called Rachel um, and I love sharing the story because she's, she was quite introverted and she used to hate sales and she used to just hate those conversations And when we spent time really uncovering her story and showing her all of the experiences she'd had in her life and how they were relevant to the people that she wanted to help, she realized that she had so much value to offer those clients. And so she niched into charities and she'd worked a lot with charities in the past and not for profits. And so recently when this whole COVID thing happened, I said to her, the first thing you want to do is you want to be active and get out there and speak to your clients. Do not let them call you and say, oh, what are we doing about this? Like get active and get out there. And she was a little bit reluctant cause she didn't know what to say. And I said, look, just be genuine, just ask how you can help. And she ended up having like two or three conversations with charities where she uncovered these kind of unmet needs. Uh, and she just shared her experience about working in the not-for-profit and charity sector. And she pulled people in her network together. So she knew people that were manufacturing PPE gear And she just used all of the resources that she already had to solve that problem. And so she switched herself in the client's mind from just this creative designer to this creative problem solver. And off the back of that, she won, you know, several big projects that she ended up getting paid up front before she'd even done any work. Cause they were like, right, we'll just give you this budget. It kind of needs to be spent. We'll give it to you and and like, we'll work the rest out later kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, And so she had all of the resources that she needed. Um, rather than kind of this thinking, and I, and I think, you know, the collaboration and the collectives and, and bringing people on is definitely an option and it's things that people should explore, but if they're not ready for that, then look at what value you already have beyond your skills. So go, go into the iceberg. Who do you know in your network? Who like, you know, just dig and ask the right questions and figure out how would you solve this problem? And I think it's just a question of people underestimating their own ability, their own problem solving ability and their own creativity.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. what's the one thing that you think is going to be super valuable to our audience in terms of like your beliefs your ideas what's the one thing that you think that can help them on their journey
0: the one thing is to get clear on your values and what you really want early on
2: mm-hmm.
0: if i had spent more time figuring out why i really wanted all those things and figuring out the emotions behind the goals i think i probably would have had a lot more fulfillment and purpose in my life
2: mm-hmm. and and from the book if i read this correctly you you reprioritize your list as your values and i think this is yours but uh, maybe i didn't read it correctly <laughs> making a difference yeah variety and exploration freedom learning and growth Mm. Are those your values? Yeah, totally. Mm, Beautiful. Okay. Uh, So then here's the next question. What's the one thing that you did that changed your life?
0: The honest answer to that has got to be investing a stupid amount of money to work (laughs) with a a very successful entrepreneur. Like that was was really the moment. Mm -hmm. I think if I hadn't done that, there's no way we'd be having this conversation. Like undoubtedly, there's no way that I would have written that book. I needed someone to hold my feet to the fire and I needed some skin in the game because I'd read mm. hundreds of books. I knew the theory. I just wasn't producing oh, the, very results interesting. In the real world. So it
2: seemed to me like your, your life was on a track. And that point in which you're identifying is I think when you're talking to Daniel Priestley and you're pursuing his workshops or webinars or whatever, and your life splits, if, if you, uh, stayed on mm. the, the arc of the, the life before it goes one way, Right, like you said, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation now. You'd probably be doing something very different, and then it, it breaks right there. And mm. what compelled you to? I mean, a lot of people read books and like, wow, that was wonderful. Like I, I'm, I include myself in that group. What made you? What drove you to take mm. it to the next level and just spend the money to to possibly travel to wherever he was speaking uh, to do that and put yourself out there? What What was the thing that drove you?
0: I think I knew deep down that if I just was left to my own devices, I wouldn't be able to have as much impact as I wanted. The thing that really drove me to that was Nigel's death made me realize how short time can be. And I didn't want to spend the next 10 years figuring this stuff out for myself. Like I wanted answers now. (laughs) You know, I wanted to take what Daniel Priestley had learned in 20 years and condense it down into six months. I wanted to take what Tony Robbins had learned in 40 years and condense it down into into two years. I, I wanted to make that change now. I wanted that significant change because I was worried that I didn't know how long I had. You know, I was I, was, I felt the pressure of time and the the kind of f- right. fragile nature of life.
2: That's great. So the thing that really compelled you is the sudden awakening of uh, the finite amount of time that we have left and you wanted to make the most of it. So you were willing... Uh, to pay and to put an energy and effort into learning these things in a compressed time so that you can get there and and not take for granted how much time you have left on earth, right?
0: totally. and i I asked myself the question, am I really doing everything that I can right now to make this work? And the answer was no. So I had to find something to be like, when I look back on this, whether it works or it doesn't, at least I can say. I was committed to that. I found the money. I, I, you know, once I traveled back from this festival, like halfway across the other side of the country, just to be at one of the events, you know, I, I lent mm-hmm. into it full tilt. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't hold anything back, and I thought whether this works or not, at least I can say I gave it a hundred percent.
2: Right. Okay. So this is a three-part combination directly connected to that, which is how much, how many programs, uh, events, workshops, seminars did you go to? How much time did you spend and how much money did you spend in this pursuit of acquiring this knowledge?
0: You don't want to know, Chris. (laughs) I do want to know.
2: I want to know the gory details is really because I think, you know what, to be honest, this is part of your story too because somebody's going to be listening to this and saying, I'm not convinced he's a 31-year-old kid. He doesn't know anything. Mm. But what we don't realize is that you could spend your entire life not learning or you can spend a year of your life learning more than somebody would spend 50 years not Mm. knowing.
0: Yeah, So exactly, I just right. want
2: to give people context here because it's not an overnight thing, I don't think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've always been into s- self-development. So, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've always, I kind of, uh, Paul McKenna is, is a famous kind of hypnotist and, and um, mindset coach in the UK. And I, I got one of his books in my early 20s. But it wasn't until probably my mid-20s, after university, I mean, that's, a, that's an investment. But right. it probably wasn't until like my mid-20s where I started to... Sp- treat my business and my life a bit different like I'm investing in my business um but the short answer to your question um is time frame wise in terms of actually like going on courses and really committing at least five years Mm -hmm. um worth of courses um and money wise well over 10,000 pounds probably close to 15,000 pounds Mm-hmm. so I don't know what that is in dollars but
2: mm-hmm. okay that's very helpful mm-hmm. uh, and I asked this and and I'm going to share also uh, because people uh, also assume these things you just acquire naturally mm-hmm. I've worked with a business coach that, that was my mentor for 10 years I met with him once a week every single week mm-hmm. for 10 years and I spent over a quarter million dollars so you don't have to be embarrassed about anything alright Chris it's right. not competition <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just doing this because this is like a public service announcement for these 22 year old wonder kids who run around. It's like, let me tell you how to do build a passive income business. I'm like, please. Yeah. Please. It, it takes time. It takes energy. It takes experience. It takes failures. It takes heartache. It, it's painful. And you go through it. And then when you emerge on the other side, you think to yourself, I think I want to spare somebody. If I can ease 10% of the pain that I felt or the struggle. And I'm doing something good in the world. And that's all.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and just a quick like side note for speaking mm-hmm. directly to those 22 year olds or whatever, because that was me once, right? And, and yes. when I look back on it, what I realized is that it was my craving for significance that drove that behavior. So I wanted to tell people what to do. I wanted people to listen to me and value my opinion, but I hadn't done the graft before I I got that respect, right? So I hadn't put in the hard yards. And so I wanted that respect now. I didn't want to wait 10 years to get that respect. And when I look back on that, the thing I would change is, and, and I'd change this now, is instead of trying to tell people what to do to get respect, actually flip that round and get really good at listening, right? Get really, really good at listening. And I don't just mean like, saying you're listening i mean actively listening and asking the right questions because that will when you respect somebody else and you respect their time and you actively listen that is when you will gain respect back from them
2: Mm. okay here's my last one thing question you ready Mm -hmm. all right somebody's listening to this right now man woman young old and they're on the edge they're not ready to take the full step and like buy into what it is you're saying because they just met you for the first time. Mm. So let's talk to them. This is like the the last message you're going to send to them before we're gone here. So it's like, what's the one thing those people need to know or to remember from this conversation?
0: When you said that, I I had my good friend Chris in my mind because whenever I write something and I think about the cynic, I think about him, um, and he's mm. recently. I've recently kind of broken, broken the back on, on that. And he's actually just spent quite a bit of money to work with the coach. Um, and it's a beautiful journey to witness, but he was that side of that fence. And I think the thing that I kept saying to him was like, where is this belief or where is this behavior coming from where you feel you have to do everything yourself? Like what's driving that? What's the belief that's, that's really fueling, that thought that you can't get help and in some way that's a negative thing or you know in some way buying into these ideas is going to lead to something really bad and just examine that and just figure out like is that really you or is that like your parents or society or like when in your life did you get taught that asking for help or not being able to achieve something on your own was like such a negative thing
2: Mm. I think, uh, I I know that's like a rhetorical question, but I'm going to try to answer it. Yeah, go for (laughs) it. I think culturally, societally, uh, it's a sign of weakness to ask for help, especially for men of certain cultures. Mm. It's very difficult to ask for help. Yeah. It's like you kind of have to almost be at your, the end of the rope before you reach out and ask for help. And so I I think there's that thing that I'm weak. I'm not Mm. as good. I'm not capable of. And it's anything but that. I think people who are strong, who... Who have a good sense of self know what they don't know and know when they need help and don't sit there and try and figure it out the classic scenario is uh the the a scene where a man and his wife are lost and driving and he will not pull over for directions yeah totally right he just will not because he's going to figure it out because he has to admit i do not know and not knowing is sometimes more horrible than just being lost
0: a hundred percent or have you ever heard that story that tony robbins always tells about when he was younger and, and someone kind of came to give his uh, dad some groceries because their family like could barely afford to eat. And mm-hmm. like, his dad wouldn't take the groceries out of pride. And he felt like it was charity and yada, yada. it's yes. like, you know, in England, we've got a saying, which is cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yes. Um, and it's like, that's exactly what that is. And it's pride. It's this sense that if I accept this in some way, I'm, I'm less of a person.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've been talking to Matthew Essam and he wrote the book, Create and Prosper. How to find your dream clients and build a freelance business you love. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Matthew, how do people find out more about you or get in touch with you?
0: Sure. So you can just head over to Matt with two T's, S. E. W. S. A. M. dot mcouk um, And I'd also love to offer your listeners a free copy of my book. So I think uh, Greg will sort that out with a with a link that you guys that you can post um, with this. Um, but yeah, if you head over to my website, then you can download some free resources and some other cool stuff.
2: Fantastic. We'll include that in the show notes. And I just want to say, uh, I, it was a pleasure talking to you. I had a, uh, I read the book and I felt like, I felt so many ideas connected to my own beliefs. And so if you guys are fans of the channel, I'm going to highly recommend that you read this book. Again, it's called Create and Prosper. I'm talking to Matthew Essam. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: No worries. Absolute pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me on. My name is Matthew Essam, and you are listening to The Future.
1: Thanks so much for joining us in this episode. If you're new to The Future and want to know more about our educational mission, visit thefuture.com. You'll find more podcast episodes, hundreds of YouTube videos, and a growing collection of online courses and products covering design and business. Oh, and we spell The Future with no E. The Future Podcast is hosted by Christo and produced by me, Greg Gunn. This episode was mixed and edited by Anthony Barrow with intro music by Adam Sanborn. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It's a tremendous help in getting our message out there and, you know, it lets us know what you like. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.